You're listening to WCOM LP 103.5 FM Carborough and Chapel Hill. It's a Tuesday, it's five o'clock, and that only means one thing. It's time for another round of Snarky Faith with your host, Stuart Deloney. This is a space where we irreverently wrestle through life, culture, and spirituality, all with our heads in the clouds, our tongues in our cheeks, our hearts in our sleeves, and our feet on the ground. At Snarky Face, the questions or even the answers are never the point. It's all about the conversation. So here's your host, Stuart Deloney. Today I'm sitting down with Lo- Logan Isaac. And after reading through Logan's website, here's how he describes himself. And I will let him describe himself a little more in our conversation here. Uh, Logan is a Christian soldier and Iraq veteran uh, writing in the wake of war as an author, advocate, entrepreneur, in an effort to cultivate conversation to community around religion and our armed service. Um, so, Logan, thank you. First of all, thank you so much for being here today. That's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, Logan, I, I want to dig a little in just to your story. Um, and so, like, as, as I've read, because um, I know you through a friend, and I've, I've read through your stuff online, you know, I, I want you to talk a little about your journey. Um, you know, so what, like, what has led you from being a soldier to being an author and an advocate? I mean, I mean, as I look through this, you've got like a master's of theological studies at Duke. Um, and you have like, yeah. And you've gone to like what university of St. Andrews in Scotland. This mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily sound like a normal, like career path from soldier, uh, to advocate. So t- tell me a little yeah. more about your story. Um, well, luckily, uh, a lot of people asked me that. So I wrote a book, uh, in 2013, I wrote, um, reborn on the 4th of July with university press. Um, and, uh, I, I don't know. I, I was, I went into the military because I needed college money. And, um, I'd always thought of myself as kind of a, a decently good person. And the, uh, when I was at, at Fort Bragg on nine 11 as a paratrooper, um, and it just kind of followed from there. I went to actually my unit, uh, didn't deploy. So I went to, um, I reenlisted in 2002, went to Hawaii to, uh, uh, train out in Schofield barracks. And then we got our deployment orders from there. And I deployed January of 2004, came home February, 2005. Um, and I was never really, um, yeah, I don't think I was very evangelical, but I went to youth group in high school. Um, occasionally I went to chapel while I was in the military. Um, but it was just kind of like coasting by, um, even in high school, I got a 2.38 because I just, I wasn't all that engaged. Um, and then I got into the military and I really was challenged to figure out what my limitations were and what my potential was. Um, and so I became a really good artilleryman. And we, um, when we were in Iraq, um, it really makes you think about like what's important and what's not important. Um, when you are, uh, the extension of foreign policy of your own, uh, of your own country, like it's hard to hide the fact that, uh, there's stuff that goes on outside your borders that's important. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I remember, I don't remember what set it off, but I read the 9-11 commission report when I was in Iraq and that was interesting. Um, and the turning point for me was, um, from being maybe like happily ignorant of really deeply political, um, things um, was when I watched an American soldier die really slowly um, and in a way that shouldn't have happened. It wasn't 
enemy contact. It wasn't heroic. It was just stupid. Um, somebody was tired and they were behind the wheel and they flipped a Humvee full of nine soldiers. Um, a couple of people were pretty seriously injured. I think one guy lost his leg and another guy, uh, ended up dying. Um, and that was nine months into my 13 month deployment, I think. Mm. And we, because, uh, my unit actually was deploying all over the place within the country of Iraq. Um, and so we saw a lot of action. Nobody got hurt because we never built up any habits or patterns. Um, but we saw a lot of action. And so I thought to myself, you know, I was really, I was really struck by, you know, this, this guy who died, who's my own skin color, my own sex, my own nationality. Uh, I found out later my own like height, weight, hair color, eye color. Um, but I didn't really care or it didn't, you know, affect me so much when I watched a bunch of brown bodies, um, expire. Um, and trying to be a person who aspires to the good, that really kind of shook me to my core. And so reading the 9-11 Commission report, and I started really reading my Bible toward the end of my deployment. And then when I got home, um, really, you know, startled me. It was kind of, it was a spiritual awakening. Um, and so I started, uh, I took some night classes. I started reading um, John Yoder and Stanley Harawas and a bunch of others that are a little bit more obscure. And uh, I was convinced, like, Christians can't be engaging in violence in this way. But I had been in by by then for five years. And some of the, some of the peripheral claims that pacifists make in the church, um, some of them are more explicit. But every now and then I would hear, like, military is inherently evil. And I just didn't buy it. And frankly, I had a lot more experience to base that conclusion on than a lot of the pacifists that I was reading and and speaking to. Um, and so I found out that I could apply to be a conscientious objector and that um, I could even apply to be a, uh, a CEO and not ask for a discharge um, because I really felt, I felt this calling to return to the Middle East. I had this kind of weird vision that I described in the book. And um, so I, I decided to ask to be a non-combatant. I told my, my infantry unit that um, we'd come down on orders again. And I told them, look, I'm I'm packed, ready to go, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to draw my weapon. And so that was interesting. Um, <laughs> long story short, um, I was, uh, I was not allowed to deploy with them and I eventually was discharged and, um, I still felt this call to the Middle East. And so, um, on my way processing out of the military, I had heard about Christian peacemaker teams. And so I, I touched base with them and they had this, um, uh, delegation going to Israel, Palestine, right around the time I was supposed to be starting my terminal leave. So I was like, I'll do it. And so when they got an application to go to the Middle East from an active duty soldier, they said, are you sure you've got the right place? Um, so I talked to them and over time they realized where I was coming from. And the only stipulation they said is that I had to grow out my beard because um, when we go into Palestine, you know, people may think that you're Mossad, they may think you're Israeli intelligence and kidnap you and either kill you or hold you for ransom. So right after getting out of the military, I found myself in Palestine and learning about um, uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And um, and in in Hebron uh, and, and traveling around Palestine for a month with, you know, peaceniks, essentially, um, I really kind of, my pendulum swung to the other side and I really felt convicted as a former uh, military person. Um, and one time in particular, um, 
we were passing through an idea, an Israeli Defense Forces um, patrol in in Hebron, and I found myself getting really indescribably angry, uh, like I was just overcome by anger. And we got back to the um, the apartment where we were staying that night, and every night at C- in CPT for short term delegations, we do check ins. And we just go around the the circle and say, how are you doing? And um, so it came to me. And before I even knew what I was saying, um, like before I knew the words that were coming out of my lips, I said, um, I think I saw myself in them. And I realized that I hadn't I hadn't dealt with and processed my own complicity in American military violence. And I still was mad at myself. Um, And that's when I realized, like, how easy it is to be an enemy on both sides of the gun. Um, so becoming an advocate, I use that phrase because, um, an advocate, uh, it derives from the Latin advocare, um, to call the side or to call to. Um, and as I was getting out, um, before I went to Israel, Palestine, I, I, I fell into, uh, what was then called the community of communities, uh, simple way, Shane Claiborne, Jonathan Wilson, Hartgrove, mm-hmm. um, Brian McLaren, that kind of crowd. And uh, they would refer other Christian soldiers to me. And um, in the midst of hearing all these like systematic propositional kind of theological crap about like, you know, just war theory or pacifism, like I could I could sniff out people's agenda. They either wanted me to stay in or they wanted me to get out or. Um, and so in these conversations with other soldiers and vets, like just in, in sharing our experiences and, and being there for one another and. Um, maintaining that camaraderie and connection that we had, even in the midst of these really difficult questions, we found that I found that to be much more um, inspiring and educational. Um, and so, uh, since I've gotten out, since before I got out, I continue to receive emails and and phone calls and sometimes snail mail from other soldiers and vets wrestling through these same questions. Um, and so that's what it means to be an advocate to me is to to help someone um who's on the journey as well at a different point maybe earlier maybe later um and it's also a legal term um in french an advocate is literally an attorney um and so recently i've been getting into federal legislation and protection for vets and um that's a whole another rabbit hole but that's kind of where that's that's the framework through which i kind of came to it i guess no it's, that's fascinating too and and you'd kind of mentioned this and that I, I think that, especially when you're talking in like the Christian sphere, it's very easy to fall into these weird binary like this or this terms. Oh or yeah. Stuff. yeah. You know, it's either you're either fully this or you're fully that. Mm-hmm. And and you know you were kind of you were kind of like hinting at this, but I, I want you to tease out a little bit like where you're at too. Um, when we begin to think about these ideas of like, am I a patriot or am I a pacifist? You know, yeah. I mean, and, and and because it sounds like that you kind of are standing. In the middle, um, of yeah, that. yeah. You know, I've actually I don't know what I would identify as anymore. Um, I am convinced that Christians should not be engaging in violence, but I'm also really cautious about absolutes like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, the classic question that uh, objectors are asked is, "Well, you know, what if somebody broke into your house and was going to like kill your kid or your rape your wife or whatever the heck it is?" And, um, the answer for me has never changed. It's like, what term do I give that? And the answer to me is like, you know, I'd probably do something. My, my intent would not be to kill them. I might feel Mm -hmm. like I want to, but I would incapacitate them. Um, that's what I would do. 
And then I'd be the first one to call 911 because, again, we're called to help people, whether we like it or not, to love our enemies. Um, and then once that person is stabilized or, you know, out of my hair, I would go to church and I would tell my priest and I would say, look, you know, I, I, I messed him up. Like, you know, I broke his jaw or whatever, you know, whatever I think in my head I might, I might do because theoretically I'm an asshole. Um, so I don't know what to call that. Um, I think too often, uh, my experience of conservative imagination is that, well, that's not, that's not evil or that's not bad because he started it. Uh, I think to myself, like, I, I used to say that when I was like five years old, like, are we going to grow out of that or, or what? Um, and so in my, the, the way I reconcile that in my mind is just to call it, you know, what classically it's been called, which is a necessary evil mm. and to not call it anything but, and we repent for evil. So I hurt this guy. I did something wrong. Maybe I owe him an apology. Maybe not. I don't know that I'm, I'm kind of on the fence about that, but like, I would never call that good. I would never call that justified. Um, and so that's what differentiates me, I think from pacifists and, and saying like, um, it's not that I will refrain from violence. It's that we live in a violent world and what are we going to do about it? Mm. Um, and too often, um, the, I think what's informing these two, um, frameworks on the one hand for pacifists, and I can get all into the theology of it, but like for pacifists, <laughs> Jesus was an example. Like we can, we are called to be that, that people, right? And so Jesus was killed rather than, um, then, you know, he didn't kill, he was killed. Um, and that's, that's fine. And I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, and then on the conservative or the, uh, you know, the patriotic side, it's like, well, um, you know, Rome is maybe Rome was not so hot, but like America, like that's, that's something I could get behind. The problem with that is that, you know, what happens if you wake up one day and you realize like when the eschaton comes, and all the angels are rejoicing that America is no more. What are you going to be doing? Mm -hmm. Like if you can't, if you can't look at at our country or any country and say, "Look, there's a finite good at best," um, then you might not be worshiping the God of of Jesus's scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, and you probably aren't reading our, you know, Christian scripture, the the um, gospels and epistles and stuff all that well. Um, and so, yeah, I think the middle ground is um, I don't. Even if I, as I say that, I think to myself, it's a compromise, like you're losing out on something. But I'm a pragmatist. Like, um, yeah, we we are called to love this world. And that means that if I commit violence, I need to call it for what it is mm -hmm. and own it as opposed to export it by saying, oh, it was their problem. They started that absolves me or, hey, I'll never commit violence or like any com violence I commit like, oh, woe is me. Like, no, sometimes you'll you'll do it and you'll feel good about it. That's the difficulty in talking to Christian soldiers. Like you hear, uh, I, I was, there's one young man that I've mentored. Um, he told me, I'm, I'm convinced he hasn't told anybody else prior to this. He told me about killing someone. And luckily, I have never looked down my rifle sight and pulled the trigger. I was an artilleryman, however. Um, so I very, 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 very likely um, did um, cause serious harm, injury, or death to people. I just don't have a number or face or names or anything like that. Um, but this young man did. Um, and he, he told me in a rather confessional tone, like I was elated. He was pointing a weapon at me and I, I killed him. And I immediately was flooded with a sense of joy and happiness. And like, 
um, you know, uh, gratitude, like, oh my, thank God I killed him. And then in a split second, you're hit with the reality that you just ended another human's life. Mm. And there's almost nothing as morally dense as, as that. Mm. Um, and so in terms of our scripture, um, like I love the fact that, um, the, the centurion on the cross is the one most directly responsible for ending the bodily life of our savior. Mm-hmm. He takes his weapon of war spear, which is not used in urban settings, takes a spear, um, as though he's on a battlefield and he pierces the side in the heart of another human being who is also fully God. Um, and that's like, can you imagine the depths of hell that you would be condemned to if that were, were all you did? Mm-hmm. And then just a few verses later, and the, the text is ambiguous in the Catholic tradition. And I believe my own Anglican and possibly Orthodox tradition, because the text is ambiguous, they assign that the, these words to the same person. This uh, centurion is at the foot of the cross and he says, surely this must be the son of God. Mm-hmm. He beats all 12, all 11 apostles by nearly a chapter um, <laughs> in confessing that. Mm-hmm. And that to me seems like a big deal. Like the, the, the moral diversity and nuance and complexity of a Christian soldier, like there's just no getting away from it. And it's, it's possibly the, the most diverse character in our scripture is, mm-hmm. you know, people who do violence on God's behalf, um, or in, in furtherance of God's will. Um, we can get into like atonement and all that crap, but like, that's a huge rabbit hole. (laughs) No, I love it. And, and I I love how, how you were kind of bringing, I mean, one, you're bringing like scholarship to view, but you're also bringing experience into this, you know, as, as you speak through this, whether it be through stuff that you've experienced or those or, or experiences of others that you've journeyed with. And, and one I mean, of the that's thing- what knowledge is about. Like that's one of yeah. my, I, 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 when I was at St. Andrews, I got a, uh, a master of letters in systematic and historical theology. And the joke is like, I can't stand systematics. I think it's a joke. <laughs> the, the idea that you can come to some like conclusion apart from embodied reality is just ludicrous. And the, the Greeks knew it. I mean, there's a difference between, uh, phrenesis and, and techne, like you have to add experience Mm-hmm. Um, that's why in academia, like you have to cite your sources because you know, you're finite. And so there's this anyway. Um, yeah, that's when I got out of the military and I wanted to do theology, I knew just pragmatically, like if I ever wanted to do academic stuff, like I had to justify what I did for six years, mm-hmm. like what's the academic or intellectual value of that. And so that it was like written into my story. Um, like what was this when I was came home from Iraq, I remember, consciously thinking to myself, if I can find some value in this, it won't conquer me. If I can learn something, if I can find it, it, like a mustard seed of goodness in this, I, I will know I have confidence that it will never overcome me. Um, and I, 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 I don't know what to believe other than that, that, that I was able to, to do, to do that. Well, what, what a question I wanted to ask you too, because I, I feel like you have, you have a very unique perspective on these things. And, and I'd love to be able to hear your input on it. And especially like we're living in this time where it feels like American culture has become incredibly divided, incredibly mm. polarized. And, you know, and the more, you know, we become polarized, the, the less rational we become mm-hmm. uh, because we, we get to this place where we're incapable of hearing from the other side. 
And, and so, you know, it, it ends up being like we just get further and further away and we just really just listen to the, our own echo chambers of the things that agree to us, oh, yeah. uh, that agree with our beliefs. And, um, and this is one thing because I've, this is something I've struggled with too, especially within evangelical Christianity is like, you know, this idea that we are uh, a Christian nation. Mm-hmm. And, and so how do you, how do you tease this out? How do you wrestle this out, this idea um, of this, that we have God and we have country and, and you know, and, and how, how do you, how do those two blend in a weird stew in your brain? God and country. Um, uh, <clears throat> I think for me, um, because of my experience getting out of the military and falling in with, um, communities made up not largely, but there's a good number of like Christian anarchists in the communities I was a part of before I, you know, went back to school and all that stuff. Um, and so I'm really sympathetic to the idea of, um, uh, no God, but God, um, mm-hmm. and that the government can and has in the past tried to assert its assert itself as God. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know, I don't know if I'm convinced that the country or, or the, that, um, uh, fabrication or falsification of God is as important as the kind of falsification of a God that we do internally. Um, and so because I'm a soldier and because I've gone to war and I do not call that good, um, I've, I've acquired a certain um, healthy amount of self-criticism. So for example, every Christmas, which is also my birthday, um, I ask for friends and family to send me letters. And I, I've, I've, I've done this at least since 2007 or eight. Um, and I have this thing, I don't want to be an asshole. I really don't. I, I really want to be a good person, but I know I won't know how I'm being an asshole unless people tell me. And usually that comes out in shouting matches or like, angry emails and you never hear, hear from him again. So every year on my birthday, I say, write me a letter and tell me what I've done to you. Tell me how I've hurt you. Tell me what I've done good also, but like, tell me what I've done poorly so that I can improve. Like what better gift than to be able to see your own faults and improve upon them. And so that, that has painted itself, uh, in my mind onto what it means to be a Christian. Um, like when I say I'm a sinner, like I know what that means. I like I have images in my head and sounds and smells that remind me of that Um, and not overpoweringly um, because I do believe that I'm forgiven and being forgiven is not a ticket to continue to sin boldly. Um, But it's a reminder of keeping that thing in me at bay that that um, wants to believe that the problem is outside myself. Mm. Um, The problem always starts inside Um, when we have decided that we are just fine. Thank you very much. And it's the other guy's problem. Thank you for um, not making me like these other people. That's the parable of the tax collector and the, and the, the mm-hmm. publican or the tax collector and the Pharisee. Um, and so that to me is like, you know, almost at the center of, of my understanding of the Christian faith is to, is to continually be on guard against um, self idolization um, and, it, and it can be really subtle. Like I thought I was a good person. Mm-hmm. I was actually like, I remember at an ambush in the Joth, um, I didn't fire my weapon. 
And it's because I just I was really discriminative about like what targets I engaged, quote unquote. And I didn't see any like there was no reason to pull my trigger. I'm not like we had enough suppressing fire. It made sense. Like I'm not gung ho. And then when we got back to base, I heard some of my battle buddies whispering about like my my nickname was Lucky. And like they were concerned that I didn't fire my weapon. Mm. And that made me feel good. Um, and so I, I went for a long time thinking like, man, I'm a pretty good person. Mm. Um, and then it all came crashing down when I realized good people don't look at human beings dying and not feel anything. Mm. There's another name for that. There's probably a lot of other names. <laughs> um, and so if we're a Christian nation, um, that means that we know what repentance means. Um, if we are a Christian people, that means that we place the needs and, uh, um, uh, expectations of others before ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, being a Christian nation isn't being the most powerful. That's a really messed up way of imagining what the, what, what it means for God to be strong. Like God, God, God's strength or on omnipotence is not like, yeah, he can move any rock that he imagines, um, being strong is like Cool Hand Luke, where Paul Newman keeps getting beat down, and he wins because he keeps getting up. Mm. Never takes a, a strike. He never strikes another, you know, his opponent. His opponent, his understanding of winning means that the other guy gets beaten down and stays down. Mm. And Paul Newman just keeps getting up. And can you imagine if you were God, would your strength, or would people be more impressed by how much you can do? Uh or by how much you can withstand. Mm. Think of how much suffering is in the world. Mm-hmm. That's my understanding of God. God can carry that. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't. That's what it means to be strong to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, Dwight Eisenhower's uh, farewell speech from the presidency is really popular in pacifist because he warns against um, the military industrial complex. And he says, I hope that we'll be humble, but confident with power. Um, and we've just lost side of the humility part of it because I mean, there's probably a number of reasons we've got plenty of confidence, not so much humility. Mm-hmm. No, that's very true. And, and, and on that kind of on that tangent a little bit, um, I would love to be able to hear your perspective about our issues with gun violence in America. Yeah, I don't know. Um, <laughs> How can we fix it? Come on, Logan. I think you can fix it right here, right now. Come on. <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I don't know if I'm against guns. Um, mm-hmm. That's another thing that I, I just don't, I don't know. I don't have much stake in. For me, um, I felt very clearly, like it was a voice, or maybe not a voice, but very clear. One of, the, one of the few places in my life where I felt very clearly that God was communicating to me was um, Middle East, no weapon. And that was it. Mm. And so I told my unit, look, I'm not going to draw a weapon. I was, I, was, I was fine carrying a K-bar or a pocket knife because, you know, maybe I need to cut a piece of rope or I don't know, whatever. um but i couldn't imagine what a firearm would be good for other than putting holes in things Mm -hmm. and it's hard to put a hole in a thing that moves that fast and that small um other than like heads and hearts and so that's at least for me like why i wouldn't carry a weapon in the battle but i've talked to friends about like you know i've never gone hunting and i don't have any philosophical or theological problems with it particularly if i'm planning to eat it right Mm -hmm. um and so I, I'd be interested in going hunting, um, and I'd be in, interested in having a conversation about what guns represent and to whom. Um, but I think I think you, you know the 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 dog or the tail wagging the dog is the NRA and 
Um, mm-hmm. The idea that we have that the that the the you know we we protected the right to bear arms in the Second Amendment, but we if you read the early drafts by Madison, um, he actually uh, his first and second draft um, the House passed it, the Senate didn't, and then they revised it in like 1789 or something. Um, the first draft of the Second Amendment included the right for religiously scrupulous people to refuse to bear arms. Hmm. And he had uh, Pennsylvania and the Quaker mission there firmly in mind. Um, and that got written out. And so when I tell my unit, like, look, I'm happy to serve in the military. I'm just going to do it nonviolently. That failed to compute in part because <clears throat> we wrote out the Senate failed to pass a protection for religiously scrupulous people such as myself to refuse to bear arms. Because mm-hmm. um, they knew there was a lot of Quakers during the Revolutionary War who wouldn't take up arms, but who did who participated or engaged and supported the war by other means, just not violent means. And so we get kind of pigeonholed into guns and violence and, and death. And it's like, actually, you can use guns for other things. And there's uh, non-lethal forms of violence and um, uh, things of that nature. So I think, yeah, I, what you said initially, I think we've the we're losing shades of gray and and the blacks and the whites and the the binary thinking is really um you know finding its way into all kinds of ways of thinking and it's really um quite scary it is it's quite scary and it's completely counterproductive um and 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 i feel like that we have we've moved to a place in america where um the plate uh i guess those spaces for people to sit around some sort of a common table and have dialogue um, it, it seems to be evaporating very fast, you know, to where you only want to hang out with your own tribe because they think like you, they don't challenge you, um, and therefore they won't disagree with you. And, and I, and I feel like that that is, that's a very, it's a very scary place to find ourselves in, um, yeah. right now. And, well, and, and I hope it, we find ourselves. Sometimes we don't even see it. Yeah. Oh, like we don't even right. know that we've surrounded, we've, like wrapped ourselves in bubble wrap and like, <laughs> um, yeah, that's what scares me is that we'll just never realize how, how isolated we are. Mm-hmm. Well, and, 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 <coughs> and then speaking about like isolation, I know you work with veterans. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there's many of us, especially a lot of our listeners here um, would say that the government, the government really has not had the backs of veterans. Um, I know in many instances continuing that they, you know, they veterans have been denied like basic rights for their service. And, and I know that's, that's a whole rabbit trail we could go down, but I I want you to speak for like, especially faith communities. Like what have you seen from the church in regards to ministering to soldiers and outreach, et cetera, like in that vein? Uh, So this is, we might get into self-promotion. Um, oh no! Self promotion. Uh, um, <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I think I don't know. It's depressing. Uh, I haven't seen much. Um, mm-hmm. Typically, what I see is is that it kind of adheres to party lines. Mm-hmm. Um, so patriotic churches do a really good job of um, um, sending people to war um, and mm-hmm. often bringing them back. Um, often there is like the veneration piece. Um, uh, and sometimes there's some space for um, um, lament in service members in patriotic churches. <clears throat> um, and then in pacifist churches, um, they really, they've, I think they've kind of lost track of the line of, of thinking, I guess. So mm-hmm. to use an example, um, 
I went to the Mennonite convention, which happens every two years. And it's always around July 4th because convention centers are really cheap. Um, and they had me do a panel actually for youth. And, uh, I talked about the military and, um, being a soldier and all that complications. And in the span of 12 hours following that, I had five young men come up to me. This is Mennonite convention. So these are young Mennonite men in churches, clearly plugged in because they came to some conference and they said, um, almost word for word, each of them said, you know, I'm really interested in joining the military. I want to protect the innocent. I want to have you know some adventure. Um, but if I do my, my community will like, you know, maybe they won't shun me, but maybe they will. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I told them, cause again, I'm a practice. I said, look, be a firefighter, be all the invention mm-hmm. adventure. Women love it. And you don't have to carry <laughs> firearms. Um, but what that disclosed is that the Anabaptist tradition has lost sight of, you know, their, the, the journey from point A to point Z. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we know we're pacifists. We've forgotten why. Or the why is connected more to a reaction to a conservative statement uh, rather than scriptural or um, cultural elements that have informed pacifism in the Anabaptist tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, I joke, um, I studied under Howard Ross after I read uh, a bunch of his material in the military. Um, and I, I was actually kind of disappointed at Duke because there are a lot of young uh, men and women, mostly men, um, who would sit in his lectures and I got the sense like they thought they were pacifist, um, just because they giggled when he would say shit. But if you ask them, like, what does it mean really to be a pacifist? Um, and they, they didn't have any straight line answer. Mm. Um, and I, I mean, I've been doing this for a long time, so I know a lot of the arguments that get thrown around. Um, but this is a top tier research institution and we're pushing, to 250 every single cohort in and out of this out of this seminary and most of them don't know what the heck they're talking about all they know is that to be a christian is to be a pacifist um and that worries me because we put the pacifist cart before the discipleship horse and so at that same mennonite conference Mm -hmm. i went to a workshop on male spirituality thinking you know i'm gonna get my head out of this whole military stuff i'm gonna take a break and i go this male spirituality thing uh, workshop and we, we break into groups and there's like five at my table and every table has a set of like picture cards and this exercise, this guy that's leading us to doing, okay, there are all these cards and some of them are, they're all vocations or jobs. And I want you to sort out which one is the most meaningful or important or whatever. And, uh, we, we open our little deck and there's you know, however many, and there's like a farmer. There's like, uh, there's one that's like clearly a preacher. There's a, an artisan or a craftsman or something. And then there's a crusader. Mm. And immediately the first card that my table goes for is that crusader. And they push them off to the side. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, well, we know where this one goes. And I thought to myself, and beforehand, I, I should have said beforehand, we had to decide what makes a man. And the mm. first one that my group decided on was fights for what is right. Mm. And then 10 seconds later, the crusader uh, or that soldier, Christian soldier, whatever, immediately gets shoved off to the side. And if there's one thing that soldiers have been willing to do through time, it's to die or possibly die, risk dying for something they believe in. Mm-hmm. So there's this cognitive dissonance between, um, you know, what it means to do to pursue the good and aspire to the good, 
and what that might cost and the like actual reality in which we're embedded. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that is in the medieval period, like they took monastics, which were, you know, isolated and self-sacrificial and aesthetic and all that stuff. And then they combined it with killing and, and they said, well, our, our penance is going off to war and, you know, maybe we'll come back and, you know, go to heaven because we killed people. And that really messed up the church's head. Um, and so I'm, I'm more concerned that too often either side of the fence is actually responding to reactions instead of like real substance. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I don't know. Uh, well, the only the, the, how I, I've tried to counter that is to remind churches I um, mean, and you asked me about ministry and all this stuff. And um, one thing that I find really important is to share those soldier stories um, to to get people back into the way of thinking like Christian soldiers are human beings. I want to humanize Christian soldiers, um, remind people that there's a living story uh, to which their stories are subplots. Uh, that story is a story of salvation history. Like we can't write out Joan of Arc. We just can't. Or if we do, then we're just kind of you know, arbitrary and selective and it's all about me and I think I know what's best and Joan of Arc just doesn't cut it. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll take like uh, Maximilian Tabessa who refused to be conscripted and was beheaded. But, you know, Joan of Arc, I don't know what to do with, so we'll just push off to the side of the table. We know where we know where that one goes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my second book um, was Forgotten Country in that order. Um, and I profiled 40 some odd different Christian soldiers that challenged this binary between God and country, between um faith and armed service. Um, and that was the whole point was to like bring attention to this middle ground, um, and churches using these stories, um, and using, um, the stories of the saints. In fact, I, I wrote it with the Mennonite press and they, um, for some of the canonized soldiers, I included short prayers, novellas, uh, novenas, and they, they were real sure they, they did not want those prayers in there. They had me rewrite them to make sure that they were addressed to God rather than the saints, which I'm fine with. Um, but it's kind of this cool little thing I got. I managed to get this really Catholic practice into a Mennonite press. Um, <laughs> but that's been my answer. I haven't I haven't found a whole lot. And that's kind of why I do what I do, um, because someone's got to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we really need to to get this get thinking about this better um, because soldiers and veterans are, are killing themselves. And they're doing so because they're internalizing the crappy stuff we say about military service or they're internalizing the silence and we're not doing uh, the work of moral formation and discernment because we don't want to talk about religion and politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that creates a direct threat to the lives and the human dignity of Christian soldiers. Um, and I think that's a huge problem. Well, and, and, and so, so speaking kind of on that line and speaking actually more into the work that you're doing. <coughs> so I, I want you to kind of, I don't know, speak about this in a certain twofold way. Like, you know, that what or how, I guess, how should faith communities be different right now? And then kind of in light of that, how do you think they should be? You know, meaning like, the, like yeah. there's changes that can be made, but then there's this idealized way that I think that you may have an interesting perspective to speak into of how um, faith communities should look like, especially with how they embrace and interact and minister and nurture to to veterans as well too because i mean that's one of those things you'd mentioned earlier you know we've kind of been talking around this whole idea of binaries um is that there are people in our culture that have many different issues that they are dealing with many different experiences that they've gone through and to be able to say oh we will minister to these people but these people not so much 
which, yeah. you know, the church has done that exceedingly well. Uh, you can fill in the blank on who those yeah. people are <laughs> over yeah. history. Um, but no, but but especially from from like your heart and from the work that you've done, you know, what is a better way? Um, so I'm the, the more we talk about binaries, the more we reinforce them. So I'm, I thought at first, like, well, here's what a past, uh, pacifist church can do. And here's what a patriot church can do. And I, I hope that I can find a middle ground. And one thing, um, I have to credit my, my wife, Laura Isaac, she's a deacon in the United Methodist church in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, and she asked me, you know, uh, when she got this job, um, she's works in Chapel Hill, actually at university UMC. Mm-hmm. And they were thinking about like, what should we do for veterans day? And she has this resource that she's, uh, um, got this sacred vow mm-hmm. <laughs> with. And so we, we were brainstorming. She had this idea. Um, so, so just Veterans Day, for example, people, churches always think they have to say something, and that's fine. You know, you can say something about it being Martin of Tours' feast day. He was uh, the first soldier saint not martyred for his faith. Um, that's a whole other rabbit hole. But um, <laughs> they typically, or Memorial Day is another big one, sometimes July 4th. Um, usually get churches that will say, you know, would you please stand if you're in the military or if you're a veteran and everybody stands and you clap. And, um, the problem with that is it assigns positive moral value to military service. And that's only half the equation. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some things that I did that, that do not deserve applause. And I know that. And when people applaud for it, that's deeply morally confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, so she and I had this idea, mostly she had this idea of um, which is especially um, uh, pertinent for Memorial Day, but she said, you know, what if what if you flip the script? What if you said, okay, um, you start from the outer layer of the onion end. Um, if you if you don't know anybody in the military, um, you know, no family members, nobody you've you've never had any conversation at any length with someone that you know is in the military, would you please stand up? And you go one onion layer inside. If you have a, a distant relative or an acquaintance that you know that you've talked to who's in the military um, and that you you care somewhat for, but maybe they're not you know in your life every day, would you please stand up? Um, and then you bring the, the onion layer in a little bit further. Um, if you've got someone in your family um, who's uh, family or, or close friends who's in the military, would you please stand up? Um, and then you say, if you're, if you're, um, married to someone in the military, if you're a, a military brat or sibling, um, and then everybody's standing and, and theoretically the people who are not standing are going to be veterans or service members themselves. And then you could say, um, now if you're, if you're, um, standing up, um, keep in mind, you have a responsibility to care for those people who need to be picked up sometimes, who find it too tiring to stand up, who have stood up for our rights and for our, our, our freedoms and our values, um, who may be um, conflicted about their military service. It's your job to pick them up when they fall. Mm. Now, if you're sitting down, the, look around you, and these are the people who will support you when you're feeling down. These are the people who have a responsibility to bring you all the way home not just a couple of days a year, but all the way home into the arms of God and into the arms of, of their loved ones. You have a responsibility. Now, please sit down uh, and we'll get on with worship. And I thought that was so mm-hmm. powerful. And the, the pastor at the, at the time decided not to do it. Uh, to, I don't know. 
Yeah, no, no, no. I, uh, but I love, I mean, I love just the picture that you were painting and the idea that, and I think this is the thing that we miss that we, I mean, simply, I mean, on a larger scale as humans that we're all in this together and especially in faith communities, we're all in this together. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I think that that, that, that is just beautiful symbolism. Um, and then you had to go and break my heart and say the pastor wouldn't do it, which doesn't surprise oh. me at all. <laughs> it's happened I, twice now. I actually, I even did it. Um, I, I, I pitched the same thing and to, to do it in orientation because when I started at Duke, there was, I had a really hard time. Um, the, the counseling representative, you get, you know, free counseling as a student. He came and he was explaining doctor patient confidentiality. He made some joke about like, you can tell me anything or you can tell us anything. You can tell us you kicked your dog, you're kicked your spouse, you're cheating on your tests. You can even tell us that you've killed someone. And then my entire entering class burst out laughing. And I sat there thinking like, well, I guess I'm not going to be going to that counseling service. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. and so, I mean, it's, it's everywhere. It's not just churches. It's, uh, it's other mm-hmm. non, uh, or parachurch organizations and communities. Um, and yeah, the tendency is to write people out like Joan of Arc doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, my buddy like, or, or GI Joe, like I, I it just con- conflicts with my understanding of what the church is. And so I'm just not going to deal with it. Okay. So as we're starting to, to kind of get to the end of this conversation here, um, here's what I, here's what I want from you. Um, two things, because especially I, I do this a lot on the show. Um, but what I do is I want to hear this from your perspective, because I think that you can give me, you can give me something. So basically at this moment, screw our listeners. This is just for me. Um, uh, but when we speak about like American Christianity we've kind of been dancing around this topic, um, over this past hour, um, tell me, tell me this. So one, what is pissing you off about the state of American Christianity right now? And then two, what is giving you hope? Um, well, we don't have to go into detail, but, um, I, I think I identify more in general, uh, with progressive ideals. Mm-hmm. Um, here in North Carolina, I, I got arrested for Moral Mondays a couple of mm-hmm. years ago. Um, I really feel strongly about protest and about putting your bodies on the line. Mm-hmm. Um, but then uh, a Confederate monument came down in my hometown. And this monument was to a composite character, a composite soldier. In fact, the inscription on it was um, for the boys who wore the gray. And you don't call officers boys. You call certain kinds of people boys. And this monument was the only monument that um, um, a certain cast of people um, had to look toward in terms of recognition for what they or their family had had, um, been willing to sacrifice. Mm. And I spoke up on social media. I said, um, uh, and this was following the, the protests in Charlottesville where a neo-Nazi killed a young woman, mm-hmm. a counter-protester, um, and it was centered on uh, a statue of Robert E. Lee. And you can trace Robert E. Lee's history. Someone can say and has his own his own ancestors or um, uh, descendants have said, look, he didn't want any statues of himself. He didn't mm-hmm. want to keep the wounds of war open. So we can actually that it's it's concrete and particular. And so um, I found out that the statue in Durham um, wasn't the first that went up outside the courthouse. The first was World War One. Three years later, the Daughters of the Confederacy put up the statue. And um, after World War One, where the Great War and the great soldiers had all this recognition, 
and the soldiers from the war uh, against the North, as they say down here sometimes, uh, they didn't get any recognition. 90,000 Confederate soldiers were conscripted. Mm-hmm. Um, the penalty was death. And there was a lot of poor white people in the South that got drawn up into this thing, just like I was drawn up into the global war on terror because I needed money for college. And so I advocated for um, the composite, even modern military, which is largely white, largely male, largely uneducated, undereducated, um, largely poor and largely Southern. And a lot of people um, did not like that. And they insisted that I decenter myself and that what they didn't understand was that I was actually speaking from a position of marginalization and oppression. And that was my being a veteran. Um, because we have all these stories that we tell about vets actually pushes my story out of, uh, reality. So that we want to believe like Chris Kyle in the American sniper, or we want to believe like, you know, um, I don't thank you for your service and everybody's broken. And, mm-hmm. um, and so, uh, and then more recently, actually in the last couple of days, um, the moral Monday movement, the, um, uh, bridge, uh, re- repairing the breach or something. Um, they put veterans up on uh, their social media and said, it's veterans like this, like like this guy or that gal who are, you know, leading the charge for civil rights and dignity and blah, blah, blah. And I called them out. I said, um, until veterans have the same equal rights and civil rights that uh, other marginalized populations do, um, that's not the vision that Martin had. Mm-hmm. Um, and so many people don't even know that um, veterans are a protected population, federally protected population. But the laws that they have are limited and really poorly enforced. And this is deeply ironic because it was um, largely black veterans um, coming home from World War II. Um, uh, uh, Medgar Evers, um, the names are escaping me, but like they saw their service and their equality with other white soldiers um, and the, the military was integrated in 1948. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was that deep disconnect between I just fought for our freedoms and I don't have freedom. Um, that was the spark um, that led to the civil rights movement. The earliest disability protections were for vets. Um, and now there is no protection for vets unless they're disabled under ADA. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I brought this to a number of people's attention. And um, that's further pissed off people in the progressive movement. And so I think what pisses me off now is uh, the sense, the same sense of tribalism that I experienced when I was getting out of the military, where it's either or. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I proposed that progressive groups simply add veteran civil rights to their list of priorities because we do not have civil rights, um, not against hate, hate crimes, not for fair housing, not for um, access to education. We have some employment protections, but they're very, very limited. Um, and all of a sudden it became like, well, how are they more disenfranchised or like, doesn't this, this take away from this and that and the other thing? And I thought like, we've, we've kind of got our minds made up like, mm. and what's deeply, um, disappointing to me is that the problem or military service is about subordinating your needs, uh, for the needs of the whole. Mm-hmm. I was taught, consciously taught to ignore physical pain and spiritual pain. My back went out when I was 30 and I didn't even know, I didn't even think to go to the emergency room until uh, Laura, who's now my wife, told me, hey, you can't walk. Maybe we should go in. Um, so we're really good at putting others before ourselves. Um, 
but when we do that, when we continue to, as a society, as a civilian society, when we ask them to fight and fight and fight, and they don't have any support structures, mm-hmm. formal support structures, I think that's exploitative. I think that's that's directly causing harm to people who are already, you know, kind of have a little bit of a messiah complex. I'll gladly climb up on that cross um, and totally ignore the fact that it's already occupied. Mm. Um, and that's a problem. Like I need, I have to be, I have to remind myself to do self care. Mm. Um, and in, in, in terms of advocacy and social justice to ask people to keep breaking themselves, to keep spending their time and energy, emotional and spiritual energy when they don't have any kind of safety net as veterans. Um, I, I think that's a big problem. It pisses me off. Mm. Um, in terms of hope, um, yeah. I'll try and make it quick. I, I think, um, <laughs> um, I, no, I think like, I think it's, it's relatively straightforward. Um, so because of all the civil rights stuff, like I know kind of how you get laws passed. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say, because I guess like you kind of have to be secretive about it. Um, but it's relatively easy. Uh, you just have to kind of put in the work and be really strategic. And then it's kind of a catch all or it can be. Um, and so I was deeply cynical about politics and about voting. And I remember this back and forth about whether or not Christians can vote back in like 2008 and 2012. Um, but I don't know. I think there's there's hope in the political process. There's hope in community organizing. Um, there's hope in um, uh, building coalitions. Um, and so I see some of these solutions, and I think um, that gives me hope that like there is actually light in the, end of the tunnel, and it's not it's not inconceivable that this could happen. That that we get civil rights. That we talk about Christian soldiers differently. I think it really could happen in our lifetime, where we kind of take stock of our our own heritage. And, and start to, um, you know, not backpedal, but kind of like catch up to our own kind of rhetoric and start um, unspinning some of these things that we've gotten spun up. Hmm. Well, Logan, um, if people are, uh, this is, again, I'll kind of ask you a loaded two-part question here. Um, so one of, what my, I guess the first part is kind of what is on the horizon for you? You know, what's, what's coming up next? What are you excited about in the work that you're doing? And then secondly, how do people find you? Um, if, if people are interested in knowing more or reading more, um, how, how do they stalk you? How do they track you down? How do they find you? Um, well, I'm on most social media and I've got a website, I am Logan, am um, and my handle is I am Logan, am I, I am Logan, M is in Mike, I is in India. Um, and, uh, the, the thing I'm really excited about now is, um, standing up a uh, social enterprise, um, that will help humanize soldiers and pick people up out of spiritual and material poverty um, through uh, education, advocacy, and the arts. The first project I've got um, that will be dropping this spring is a, uh, a book, bike, and conversation peddler I call Spoken Polite Company. Um, you can find out more at SpokenPolite.com. Um, and it's, it's, it's exactly what it sounds like. I'm going to s- sell used books and coffee from a book bike and um, – inspire conversation and people to get them talking about Christian soldiers, about politics. Um, and then hopefully, um, possibly stand that up to a a brick and mortar coffee and bookshop in the future. But at least for right now, um, in the spring, I really want to kind of, once the weather hits and people are coming out to farmer's markets, I want to, I want to kind of hit them with things that'll piss them off and get them talking and (laughs) see if I can, uh, yeah, learn what uh, buttons I can push. 
Um, but that, that's that's the most immediate thing on the horizon. I'm also doing a lot of things around pilgrimages and um, iconography and, and writing, but it's all kind of all over the place. The one thing I'm really excited about is definitely spoken plight company. Mm-hmm. Well, Logan, I, I just, just, first of all, I, I just want to thank you so much um, for being on the show. I, I just want to thank you for just being so open and sharing your story. And no, it's my I, pleasure. I, I just, I appreciate the work that you're doing. I, th- I think it's vital. Um, and, and I think that this is, it is a great thing um, that you were setting forth to do. And so I, I don't know, I wish you the best and I'd love to have you on again sometime. Great. Yeah. I, I've had a great time. I really appreciate it. All right. Well, thank you so much, Logan. WCOM is listener-supported community radio, and Snarky Faith is only possible through our sponsors. Aqueduct Conference Center was established in 1978 as a peaceful destination for small group meetings, special events, conferences, retreats, and weddings. For more information, go to www.aqueductcc.com. We are also sponsored by Lumen. Lumen a spiritual community of seekers, sojourners, question askers, doubters, and skeptics, is a collective of fellow travelers that embrace the truth that all life is sacred, hope is real, and tomorrow can be better than today. All are welcome. You can find more information at www.lumencommunities.com.